Section 28 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 29, The Literature of the Reign, First Survey, Part 2. Macaulay was not exactly what the Germans would call a many-sided man. He never was anything but the one Macaulay in all he did or attempted, but he did a great many things well. Nothing that he ever attempted was done badly. He was as successful in the composition of a pretty valentine for a little girl as he was in his history, his essays, his lays of ancient Rome, and his parliamentary speeches. In everything he attempted, he went very near to that success which true genius achieves. In everything, he just fell short of that achievement. But he so nearly attained it that the reader who takes up one of Macaulay's books or speeches for the first time is almost sure to believe, under the influence of the instant impression, that the genuine inspiration is there. Macaulay is understood to have for a long time thought of writing a romance, if he had done so, we may feel sure that many intelligent readers would have believed on the first perusal of it that it was almost on a level with Scott, and only as the first impression gradually faded and they came to read it again, have found out that Macaulay was not a Scott in fiction any more than he was a Burke in eloquence or a Gibbon in history. He filled, for a long time, a larger space in the public mind than any other literary man in England, and his style greatly affected literary men. But his influence did not pierce deeply down into public feeling and thought, as that of one or two other men of the same period undoubtedly did, and does still. He did not impress the very soul of English feeling as Mr. Carlyle, for example, has done. No influence suffused the age from first to last more strongly than that of Thomas Carlyle. England's very way of thinking was at one time profoundly affected by Carlyle. He introduced the English people to the great German authors, very much as Lessing had introduced the Germans to Shakespeare and the old English ballads. Carlyle wrote in a style which was so little like that ordinarily accepted as English that the best thing to be said for it was that it was not exactly German. At one time it appeared to be so completely molded on that of John Paul Richter that not a few persons doubted whether the newcomer really had any ideas of his own. But Carlyle soon proved that he could think for himself, and he very often proved it by thinking wrong. There was in him a deep, strong vein of the poetic. Long after he had evidently settled down to be a writer of prose and nothing else, it still seemed to many that his true sphere was poetry. The grim seriousness which he had taken from his Scottish birth and belongings was made hardly less grim by the irony which continually gleamed and scowled through it. Truth and force were the deities of Carlyle's especial worship. The eternal verities sat on top of his Olympus. To act out the truth in life and make others act it out would require some force more strong, ubiquitous, and penetrating than we can well obtain from the slow deliberations of an ordinary parliament with its debates and divisions and everlasting formulas. Therefore, to enforce his eternal verities, Carlyle always preached up and yearned for the strong man, the poem and action, whom the world in our day had not found 
and perhaps would never appreciate. If this man were found, it would be his duty and his privilege to drill us all in some vast camp and compel us to do the right thing to his dictation. It cannot be doubted that this preaching of the divine right of force had a serious and sometimes a very detrimental effect upon the public opinion of England. It degenerated often into affectation, alike with the teacher and the disciples. But the influence of Carlyle in preaching earnestness and truth, in art and letters and everything else, had a healthy and very remarkable effect entirely outside the regions of the moralist, who in this country at least has always taught the same lesson. It is very probable that individual men were made much more truthful in England by Carlyle's glorification of the eternal verities than they would have been without it. But his influence on letters and art was peculiar and was not evanescent. Carlyle is distinctly the founder of a school of history and a school of art. In the meanwhile, we may regard him simply as a great author and treat his books as literary studies and not as gospels. Thus regarded, we shall find that he writes in a style which every sober critic would feel bound to condemn, but which nevertheless the soberest critic is forced continually, despite himself and his rules, to admire. For out of the strange jargon which he seems to have deliberately adopted, Carlyle has undoubtedly constructed a wonderfully expressive medium in which to speak his words of remonstrance and admonition. It is a mannerism, but a mannerism into which a great deal of the individuality of the man seems to have entered. It is not wholly affectation or superficiality. Carlyle's own soul seems to speak out in it more freely and strenuously than it would in the ordinary English of society and literature. No tongue, says Richter, is eloquent save in its own language, and this strange language, which he has made for himself, does really appear to be the native tongue of Carlyle's powerful and melancholy eloquence. Carlyle is endowed with a marvelous power of depicting stormy scenes and rugged, daring natures. At times strange, wild, piercing notes of the pathetic are heard through his strenuous and fierce bursts of eloquence, like the wail of a clarion thrilling between the blasts of a storm. His history of the French Revolution is history read by lightning. Of this remarkable book, John Stuart Mill supplied the principal material, for Mill at one time thought of writing a history of the Revolution himself, but giving up the idea, placed the materials he had collected at the service of Carlyle. Carlyle used the materials in his own way. He is indebted to no one for his method of making up his history. With all its defects, the book is one of the very finest our age has produced. Its characters stand out like portraits by Rembrandt. Its crowds live and move. The picture of Mirabeau is worthy of the hand of the great German poet who gave us Wallenstein. But Carlyle's style has introduced into this country a thoroughly false method of writing history. It is a method which has little regard for the dry light which Bacon approved. It works under the varying glare of colored lights. Its purpose is to express scorn of one set of ideas and men and admiration of another. Given the man we admire, then all his doings and ways must be admirable, and the historian proceeds to work this principle out. Carlyle's Mirabeau 
is as truly a creature of romance as the Monte Cristo of Dumas. This way of going to work became even more apparent as the mannerisms became more incessant in Carlyle's later writings. In the Frederick the Great, for example, the reader dares not trust such history. It is of little value as an instructor in the lessons of the times and events it deals with. It only tells us what Carlyle thought of the times and the events, and the men who were the chief actors in them. Nor does Carlyle bequeath many new ideas to the world which he stirred by his stormy eloquence. That falsehood cannot prevail over truth in the end, nor simulacra do the work of realities, is not after all a lesson which earth can be said to have waited for up to the nineteenth century and the coming of Carlyle. And yet it would be hard to point to any other philosophical outcome of Mr. Carlyle's teaching. His value is in his eloquence, his power, his passion and pathos, his stirring and lifelike pictures of human character, whether faithful to the historical originals or not, and the vein of poetry which runs through all his best writings and sometimes makes even the least sympathetic reader believe that he has to do with a genuine poet. In strongest contrast to the influence of Carlyle may be set the influence of Mill. Except where the professed teachers of religious creeds are concerned, there can be found no other man in the reign of Victoria who had anything like the influence over English thought that Mill and Carlyle possessed. Mill was a devoted believer in the possibilities of human nature and of liberty. If Rousseau was the apostle of affliction, Mill was surely the apostle of freedom. He believed that human society might be brought to something not far removed from perfection by the influence of education and of freedom, acting on the best impulses and disciplining the emotions of men and women. Mill was a strange blending of political economist and sentimentalist. It was not altogether in humorous exaggeration that somebody said he was Adam Smith and Petrarch in one. The curious seclusion in which he was brought up by his father, the wonderful discipline of study to which in his very infancy he was subjected, would have made something strange and striking out of a commonplace nature, and Mill was in any case a man of genius. There was an antique simplicity and purity about his life which removed him altogether from the ways of ordinary society. But the defect of his teaching, as an ethical guide, was that he made too little allowance for the influence of ordinary society. He always seemed to act on the principle that with true education and noble example, the most commonplace men could be persuaded to act like heroes and to act like heroes always. The great service which he rendered to the world in his political economy and his system of logic is, of course, independent of his controverted theories and teachings. These works would, if they were all he had written, place him in the very front rank of English thinkers and instructors. But these only represent half of his influence on the public opinion of his time. His faith in the principle of human liberty led him to originate the movement for what is called the emancipation of women. Opinions will doubtless long differ as to the advantages of the movement, but there can be no possible difference of judgment as to the power and fascination of Mill's advocacy and to the influence he exercised. He did not succeed in his admirable lesson on liberty. 
in establishing the rule or principle by which men may decide between the right of free expression of opinion and the right of authority to ordain silence. Probably no precise boundary can ever be drawn, and in this, as in so much else, lawmakers and peoples must be content with a compromise. But Mills is at least a noble plea for the fullest possible liberty of utterance, and he has probably carried the argument as far as it ever can be carried. There never was a more lucid and candid reasoner. The most difficult and abstruse questions become clear by the light of his luminous exposition. Something, too, of human interest and sympathy became infused into the most seemingly arid discussions of political economy by the virtue of his emotional and half-poetic nature. It was well said of him that he reconciled political economy with human feeling. His style was clear as light. Mill, said one of his critics, lives in light. Sometimes his language rose to a noble and dignified eloquence. Here and there are passages of a grave, keen irony. Into the questions of religious belief which arise in connection with his works, it is no part of our business to enter. But it may be remarked that his latest writings seem to show that his views were undergoing much modification in his closing years. His opponents would have allowed as readily as his supporters that no man could have been more sincerely inspired with a desire to arrive at the truth, and that none could be more resolute to follow the course which his conscience told him to be right. He carried this resolute principle into his warmest controversies, and it was often remarked that he usually began by stating the case of the adversary better than the adversary could have done it for himself. Applying to his own character the same truthful method of inquiry which he applied to others, Mill has given a very accurate description of one at least of the qualities by which he was able to accomplish so much. He tells us in his autobiography that he had from an early period considered that the most useful part he could take in the domain of thought was that of an interpreter of original thinkers and mediator between them and the public. I had always a humble opinion of my own powers as an original thinker, except in abstract science, logic, metaphysics, and the theoretical principles of political economy and politics, but thought myself much superior to most of my contemporaries in willingness and ability to learn from everybody, as I found hardly anyone who made such a point of examining what was said in defense of all opinions, however new or however old, in the conviction that even if they were errors, there might be a substratum of truth underneath them, and that in any case the discovery of what it was that made them plausible would be a benefit to truth. This was not assuredly Mill's greatest merit, but it was perhaps his most peculiar quality. He was an original thinker, despite his own sincere disclaimer, but he founded no new system. He could be trusted to examine and expound any system with the most perfect fairness and candor, and even where it was least in harmony with his own ideas, to do the fullest justice to every one of its claims. Harriet Martineau's career as a woman of letters and a teacher began, indeed, before the reign of Queen Victoria, but it was carried on almost without interruption during nearly forty years of the reign. She was political economist, novelist, historian, biographer, and journalist, and in no path did she fail to make her mark. Few women could have turned to the occupations of a political writer under greater physical disadvantages, 
and no man in this line of life, however well furnished by nature with physical and intellectual qualifications for success, could have done better work. She wrote some exquisite little stories and one or two novels of more ambitious character. It is praise enough to give them when we say that although fiction certainly was not work for which he was most especially qualified, yet what she did seems to be destined to live and hold a place in our literature. She was, so far as we know, the only Englishwoman who ever achieved distinct and great success as a writer of leading articles for a daily newspaper. Her strong prejudices and dislikes prevent her from being always regarded as a trustworthy historian. Her history of the Thirty Years' Peace, for it may be regarded as wholly hers, although Charles Knight began it, is a work full of vigorous thought and clear description with here and there passages of genuine eloquence, but it is marred in its effect as a trustworthy narrative by the manner in which the authoress yields here and there to inveterate and wholesale dislikes, and sometimes, though not so often or so markedly, to an overwrought hero-worship. Miss Martineau had to a great extent an essentially masculine mind. She was often reproached with being unfeminine, and assuredly she would have been surprised to hear that there was anything womanish in her way of criticizing public events and men. Yet in reading her history, one is sometimes amused to find that that partisanship which is commonly set down as a specially feminine quality affects her estimate of a statesman. Hers is not by any means the Carlylean way of starting with a theory and finding all virtue and glory in the man who seems to embody it, and all baseness and stupidity in his opponents. But when she takes a dislike to a particular individual, she seems to assume that where he was wrong he must have been wrong of set malign purpose, and that where he chanced to be right it was in mistake, and in despite of his own greater inclination to be in the wrong. It is fortunate that these dislikes are not many, and also that they soon show themselves and therefore cease to be seriously misleading. In all other respects, the book well deserves careful study. The life of the woman is a study still more deeply interesting. Others of her sex there were of greater genius, even in her own time, but no Englishwoman ever followed with such perseverance and success a career of literary and political labor. The Blue Peter has long been flying at my foremast, and now that I am in my ninety-second year, I must soon expect the signal for sailing. In this quaint and cheery way, Mary Somerville, many years after the period at which we have now arrived in this work, described her condition and her quiet waiting for death. No one surely could have better earned the right to die by the labors of a long life devoted to the education and improvement of her kind. Mary Somerville has probably no rival among women as a scientific scholar. Her summary of Laplace's Mécanique Céleste, her treatise on the connection of the physical sciences, and her physical geography would suffice to place any student, man or woman, in the foremost rank of scientific expounders. The physical geography is the only one of Mrs. Somerville's remarkable works which was published in the reign of Queen Victoria, but the publication of the other two preceded the opening of the reign by so short a time and her career and her fame so entirely belonged to the Victorian period that even if the physical geography had never been published, she must be included in this history. I was intensely ambitious, 
Mrs. Somerville says of herself in her earlier days, to excel in something, for I felt in my own breast that women were capable of taking a higher place in creation than that assigned to them in my early days, which was very low. It is not exaggeration to say that Mrs. Somerville distinctly raised the world's estimate of woman's capacity for the severest and the loftiest scientific pursuits. She possessed the most extraordinary power of concentration, amounting to an entire absorption in the subject which she happened to be studying, to the exclusion of all disturbing sights and sounds. She had, in a supreme degree, that which Carlyle calls the first quality of genius, an immense capacity for taking trouble. She had also, happily for herself, an immense capacity for finding enjoyment in almost everything, in new places, people, and thoughts, in the old familiar scenes and friends and associations. Hers was a noble, calm, fully rounded life. She worked as steadfastly and as eagerly in her scientific studies as Harriet Martineau did with her economics and her politics, but she had a more cheery, less sensitive, less eager and impatient nature than Harriet Martineau. She was able to pursue her most intricate calculations after she had passed her ninetieth year, and one of her chief regrets in dying was that she should not live to see the distance of the earth from the sun determined by the transit of Venus, and the source of the most renowned of rivers, the discovery of which will immortalize the name of Dr. Livingston. End of section 28